It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Programme. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get right through now, it. the COVID-19 vaccine are available to millions of Americans and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hugger and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people, and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. It's a good one today, uh, coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour. Uh, we're going to start the weekend off early talking music with uh, British music journalist and broadcaster Paul Sexton from the U.K. talking about his new book, Prince, a portrait of the artist in memories and memorabilia. We're going to also talk with, um, in the second hour, with uh, historian Terry Chester Schulman about his book, Flint's First Flint, Film's First Family, The Untold Story of the Costellos. But uh, this first hour, we're going to talk about... Um, a new book uh, written uh, by the author, well, the author of five novels, and uh, she has taught uh, Hebrew and Yiddish literature at Harvard. And the name of the book is, uh, her newest book is People Love Dead Jews, Reports from a Haunted Present by Dara Horn, who joins me by phone. Hi, Dara. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Um Dara, this that's kind of a dark title. <laughs> Are you afraid that that's going to turn people off a little bit? Oh gosh, I can't believe my publisher let me 
call this book People Love Dead Jews. Um, yeah, I sort of still can't believe it. But, you know, um, you know, it certainly is provocative, um, you know, but it is, uh, I think that it really captures a lot of what I'm trying to say, and it's, the title almost is like a dare. Um, I've noticed that when I talk to friends about it, um, my, a lot of my non-Jewish friends are a little intimidated by it. They're like, wow, that's a... Very, very bold <laughs> title, right? But, uh, but I'll say, I'll be uh, honest with you, a lot of my Jewish friends just laugh, and they're like, oh, I know exactly what you mean. Uh, and that just, um, I, I, couldn't you make the argument that um, some people who have a fascination with history are really studying dead people? Well, I think that's you know, certainly true, and I mean, look, I have a, a doctorate in uh, Yiddish and Hebrew literature. A lot of my work deals with history, so um, I'm, I'm a big fan of history, but um, what I'm talking about in this book is something that's a little bit more subtle. It's about um, a kind of um, reverence that we give in public life to, um, to essentially to dead and murdered Jews, um, which is a respect we don't give to living ones. Um, so if maybe if we have a minute, I could tell you a little uh, story that I included at the beginning of the book to explain what I mean. Yeah, please. Okay, sure. So um, an example of what I mean is that um, when I, I, was, I first started thinking about this book in 2018, when I, and that was a point where I had, as, I, as you mentioned, I'm a novelist. I've published five novels. Um, all of my novels deal with aspects of Jewish life and culture. But around a, uh, a few years ago, I started noticing that a lot of my editors at magazines and newspapers that I would write for, that whenever they asked me to write a piece, it was always to write about dead Jews. Um, an example of this is in 2018, uh, Smithsonian Magazine asked me to write a piece about Anne Frank. Um, they and I just remember getting that, res um, that request and thinking, oh, I really don't want to write about Anne Frank. And then, you know, but for me as a writer, the uncomfortable moments are where the story is. And so instead of just turning down the assignment, I thought, well, why don't I want to do this? Then I remembered the story that really encapsulates this uh, title and, and started the idea for me. I remembered I had read a news item about the Anne Frank Museum in Amsterdam. So for any listeners who don't know, Anne Frank was a teenage Jewish girl who was hiding with her family from the Nazis in a, um, you know, in some, a set of hidden rooms in, a, in an office building in Amsterdam in Holland um, until they were uh, found out and discovered and deported to uh, Auschwitz and murdered in the Holocaust. Um, this building where her, she and her family were hiding is now, um, has been made into this museum um, commemorating her life and the lives of these other people who were murdered. And it's like this blockbuster museum where, the, I mean, I don't know, like before COVID, it was like maybe 2 million visitors a year go to this museum. The news item I had read was about a young Jewish employee at this Holocaust museum, essentially, a young Jewish employee, and he his employer, the museum, would not let him wear his yarmulke to work, right, this uh, skull cap that religious Jewish men wear. They wouldn't let him wear it to work. They made him hide it under a baseball hat. He then appealed this decision to the board of the museum, and the board of the museum deliberated for about four months, and then they finally decided, okay, we'll let this guy wear his yarmulke to work. I had read that news item, and I just thought, you know, four months is a really long time for the Anne Frank Museum to ponder whether or not it was a good idea to force a Jew into hiding. 
And, you know, that's what I, well, that's what, what it is. And, you know, what I realized is that, you know, this museum and a lot of Holocaust museums and movies and books and school curricula, all that sort of stuff, you know, the purpose is, like, to teach everybody, like, a nice lesson about humanity. Um, but, you know, that requires, like, erasing Jewish identity. And so when I wrote that piece for Smithsonian, my first line of the piece was, people love dead Jews, living Jews, not so much. And, you know, what happened was, you know, you might say, oh, this is just one incident at one museum, but then I realized that this, it's, this reverence for dead Jews at the expense of living Jews and also at the expense of Jewish culture, it's just everywhere. Um, it's just, and it's, it's so perverse and so pervasive. And, um, you know, I have a lot of other examples in the book of where I see this phenomenon, but it's something that's really part of contemporary life, and I think it's that, you know, people like to tell stories about the past, and in this case about dead Jews, that make them feel better about themselves. You know, there are literally millions of, of Holocaust stories, but the, um, I, I think, isn't one of the reasons that, that so many people remember or are fascinated by uh, the Anne Frank story it was the journal that she kept, the diary? Yes, um, exactly. So that was she had. She was a teenage girl who was keeping a diary while she was um, living in hiding, and that diary was discovered after her death. Um, so after the war, um, everyone in this who had been hiding in this place was murdered, except for her father managed to survive, and he came back and discovered her diary left in this hiding place, and then was able to publish it, and it became this bestseller. Um, the problem with that diary, in terms of like the way it's been received, and it's also like this mega bestseller over the past, I mean, it was published in the 1950s originally, and it's, I mean, it sold tens of millions of copies. The problem is, you know, that diary takes you all the way up to when she is arrested and deported to Auschwitz. It doesn't tell you about, like, how she died, why she died. I mean, these kinds of things are elided, and it's turned into this story of hope. So my example that I give in the book is the most famous line from that diary is this place where it's about, it's very near the end of this diary, where she writes, I still believe in spite of everything that people are truly good at heart. And that's the sentence that, you know, is plastered on the book cover, it's on the walls of the museum, it's like, oh, look, this is so inspiring to us. But, you know, when we say it's inspiring to us, what we really mean is that it flatters us, right, because it makes us feel forgiven, right, for, you know, these lapses in our civilization that, you know, lead to piles of murdered girls, right? But that's not what she's saying, right? If you think about what she's really saying, the truth is much simpler, Anne Frank wrote those words about people being truly good at heart three weeks before she met people who weren't good at heart. Three weeks after she wrote those words, she was arrested by the Nazis, taken to Auschwitz, and murdered. I mean, that's when she met people who weren't good at heart. And so, you know, we're turning this into this, like, uplifting story about humanity when it's really the opposite. And, you know, we're, we're flattering. I think there's something that's sort of that we tell stories that make us comfortable. And that's why that story is so appealing. In the book, I compare it with, um, there are many other diaries that people kept during the Holocaust. Um, and one that I compare it to is a diary kept by a young Jewish man who is a very similar story, young Jewish man, young Jewish person who kept a diary during the Holocaust that was discovered after his death. But this was a diary that was kept at Auschwitz, at this 
death camp. And this young man was forced by the Nazis to escort people into the gas chambers and then after they were murdered to remove their bodies and burn them that was the job he was forced to do and he writes about this in his diary and let's just say his diary is not so uplifting but which one is more popular this is sort of the question that i'm asking readers to consider and in in the book it's and i don't have the book yet and i apologize for that um but I'm, am I to understand it's a collection of essays, and, and are they all written by you, or are there essays, essays by other people as well? Oh, um, good question. Yes, it's, it, it is a collection of essays that are all by me. Um, so these are all essays that I've written. Some of them have published before, some of them not. Um, but they are all sort of tackling the same question. Um, and as I said earlier, it, you know, it's sort of, I started thinking about this idea, um, you know, when I first started noticing editors at magazines kept asking me to write these pieces um, about, you know, about dead Jews. And what I really noticed is that um, it's, it's sort of coincided with this uh, upsurge in anti-Semitism in the United States in the last few years. Um, that Smithsonian piece that I mentioned that I wrote about Anne Frank, that pub was published in 2018. It came out just a few days before the um, massacre at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, um, you know, where someone had walked into a synagogue and started shooting people. And, of course, immediately after that happened, uh, editors started calling me again to write about dead Jews. And I just noticed people wanted me to be, um, you know, people wanted me to say something like sad and beautiful and inspiring about this, whereas what I really felt was enraged. And that was what I wanted to express. And so this book really, it's many different essays about many different um, things in contemporary life. And it goes as far as China and um, other places where Jewish life is represented in what I consider this perverse way. And the um, what do you mean when you when you say reports from a haunted present? What do you mean by haunted present? Well, so I think you know the the memory. So it's there is this sort of long history in you know uh, for the Jewish people of these sort of repeated persecutions, um, and in contemporary life that reverberates most recently with you know the memory of the Holocaust. But what happens is that I feel that, that the way that memory is treated, it seems to make it almost impossible to talk about contemporary anti-Semitism. So when I say a haunted present, what I mean is a few different things. One is that you know, when you do have these contemporary attacks on the Jewish community, as we've seen in recent years in the United States, um, and of course all over the world in many different places in, many, in you know, the past, um, you know, well, it's it's almost Dara. It's almost as if people look at the Holocaust and say, "Well, that's probably the worst it could ever get, and we beat that, so we're probably going to be okay." Yes, exactly. There's this idea that sort of like you know, and and you know, there's been this sort of saturation of Holocaust education. Dara, um, Dara yeah, we have yeah. to put a comma here. Uh, um, I need to go to break here. Uh, can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some Be more? Be happy to. My, sure. guest, my guest is uh, Dara Horn. She is the author of a uh, book provocatively called People Love Dead Jews, Reports from a Haunted Present. And we're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break if you're streaming us. We have some messages as well. 
We'll be right back. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-Double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. 
and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation with the author of People Love Dead Jews, Reports from a Haunted Present, Dara Horn, who joins me by phone. Dara, uh, thanks for sticking around, and uh, welcome back. Sorry to make you sit through all that. Delighted to be here. Um, Just before the break, we were talking a little bit about how... um, the Holocaust and and other historic uh, acts of anti-Semitism and persecution overshadow contemporary anti-Semitism. And I, I wanted to bring up a story you recount about uh, discovering that your children were aware of anti-Semitism in a way that was almost sort of matter-of-fact, and you were a little surprised by that. And... and uh, you were attempting to explain a, a recent event in the news. Sure. So, um, yeah, the, the, um, after that, um, this massacre at the synagogue in Pittsburgh a few years ago, which I, I mentioned earlier before the break, um, I was, you know, I was re- trying to sort of, you know, realize I had to talk to my children about this, and I, you know, started telling them about this, and I'm like, you know, you're probably wondering why this happened. And my kids just sort of looked at me. They're like, well, you know, there are people who hate Jews. And I'm just like, <laughs> I was disturbing to me that they knew this. Right? I was like, how did you know this? And, you know, they just sort of, like, rolled their eyes at me, and they're like, you know, even mom, it's like in every holiday, right? It's like in the Passover story and the Hanukkah story and the Purim story. And, you know, these, you know, there are these Jewish holidays that are about this sort of um, battle against oppression. And, um, you know, the Passover story is about, you know, the Jews being enslaved in ancient Egypt, right? I mean, and, and being freed from slavery in ancient Egypt. Um, the Hanukkah story is about, you know, Jews who were um, forbidden from practicing their religion by an ancient Greek empire um, and then fought back against this Greek empire. I mean, this is, it is, it's true that this is a very long historical arc, and, you know, I hadn't even really appreciated how much of that my children had absorbed. But then there's, you know, there's also something more in there. And that, I, was, uh, I was taken by the fact that you were a little surprised by, by their reaction as much as you've written about these issues. Yes. Well, <laughs> well so the piece, yes, but, but I mean, like, you know, obviously they learned about, you know, that we these holidays and these and these you know historical stories from me right i mean this is you know like we've been talking about this in our family all along but i think you know for it to sort of like you know that this is something that's real that's happening here and it's happening now is really different um but also i i also see that like my children are you know are growing up in an america very different from the one i grew up in where there's sort of this um you know there's you know it's after um you know 20 years ago we just celebrated you know celebrated we just commemorated the anniversary of the terrorist attacks in New York City and and the Pentagon and the September 11th attacks um and you know there were you know there's been you know the rise of the internet where there's this sort of this like open um you know hate speech which you know people including children are sort of like in confronting all the time that people used to have less exposure to so there's sort of like this sort of baseline of 
um, you know, suspicion of others that and denigration of others that they're growing up with, which I haven't appreciated how how much that had changed them. An example of this that I, I give also in the book is about, um, you know, I remember once this was a, a number of years ago when one of my children was in a, it was in our synagogue choir and they had a, the, like a, there was a Thanksgiving, an interfaith Thanksgiving service where their synagogue choir was performing and it was at a church down the street from our synagogue. And I remember we went into, we I drove my daughter to this and we're walking into the church building and we go in the building and she just like looks at me that she was pretty little at this time she was maybe eight years old she looks at me she's like mommy are we allowed to just like walk in i was like yeah we're walking in your rehearsals in this room let's go (laughs) and she's like no why do we just walk in she's like you mean there's not like a guard because all synagogues in the united states in the past 20 years maybe not all but you know almost every synagogue will have security um, now, I want to ask you about that. That's normal. I'm sorry? Yeah, I, Dar, I want to ask you about that because, you know, you mentioned September 11th, and we certainly saw a lot of anti-Arab sentiment and hate in the wake of that event. Recently, with the pandemic, we've, we've seen attacks on Asian Americans, and, and there doesn't seem to be any short, uh, shortage of hate and and anti-something, but you suggest anti-Semitism is on the rise. How come? You know, the the silly question is, what did the Jews do? (laughs) (laughs) The answer is nothing, right? I mean, like, racism is never the fault of the people who are being attacked. It's It's the fault of the people who are doing the attacking, right? And you know, I mean, this is that's that's the nature of racism. But we've um, been, but, you but know, we've been looking, fear. we've been looking at these other events as reactions to something. You know, the the attacks on September 11th, the the quote uh, China virus. Um, you know, we we um, you were about to talk about fear, and of course, fear is at the center of this. Um, but how does it uh, apply to Jews? That's I, I'm I'm struggling with that. All right. Yeah. No. Out. Of course, I understand. Of course. Um, well, so you know, anti-Semitism is a little bit different, maybe from other you know forms of bigotry, in that it's essentially a conspiracy theory. Um, right. This it takes the. Str- I mean, it's it's no different from other bigotries in that it involves people hating others with you know as a group for, for really no logical reason. Um, and for, you know, the, the motivation of that hatred has to more to do with their fears about their own position in society. This gives me the, the chance form- to ask you, Dara, as long as we're talking yeah. about conspiracy theories, do Jews really have space lasers? Yeah, Jews don't have space lasers. <laughs> or at least, I mean, they haven't sent me one yet. <laughs> I have not yet gotten my space laser in the mail. I'm very upset about that. <laughs> um, yeah, there's, you know, anti-Semitism is a conspiracy theory, right? The concept is that, like, you know, there's this, like, secret nefarious group of people who are trying to take over the world, and they're running things behind the scenes, right? The thing about a conspiracy theory is that it's comforting, right? It makes complicated events seem understandable, right? You can explain it away by saying, oh, it's, you know, those people over there, you know, they caused this problem. You know, it's not like because of all these, you know, vast 
factors that you know are you know have been developing for years. It's because of those people over there, and you see that. And so when I say the connection with the nine eleven attacks, immediately after the nine eleven attacks, there were all kinds of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories on the internet of like, oh, you know, this was a plot by the Jews. You know, it was to you know get more support for Israel or something like that. I mean, that's and you see, you know, there's these are just bonkers conspiracy theories, and you know, I, I, there's been you know you can even look online now and see crazy anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about the about COVID, and you know this is very old. This go, I mean, people were doing this during the Black Plague, in you know in medieval Europe, people were blaming the Jews. They said the Black Plague was caused by Jews poisoning the wells, and in fact, more Jews died in the Black Plague out of proportion to their numbers, not because they were more of them being you know killed by the disease, but because they were being murdered by their neighbors. For quote causing the plague, so I mean, you know, this is just you know when you have a my you know, this is a minority group that is very conveniently scapegoated, and that's really what that's really what it's about. So you know, well, you know, you, is there some logical hook? I mean, not really, right? I mean, there really isn't. It's sort of this is something. This is a role that Jews have played frequently in Western civilization, and I would say that you know those. I think it's instructive when you look at prejudices against other groups because those prejudices are equally without merit. I'm reminded of the uh, the line that that Tevye gives in uh, Fiddler on the Roof when he says, uh, "God, I know the Jews are your chosen people, but once in a while, couldn't you choose someone else?" <laughs> well, my counter to that, well, that's okay, but the, my counter to that, of course, is like what you see in Jewish history is like this master class in resilience, right? I mean, what I think is so remarkable about Jewish history is not like, oh, look how many times these people were persecuted, um, sob story, but like, look how unbelievably this group of people has preserved this ancient culture in such adverse circumstances. I mean, I think that's sort of an amazing, amazing story to tell. You know, we we hear about when when people talk about American values. Um, very often, the phrase is used: uh, Christian Judeo values. Um, did Jews really play a role in the early days of the of the forming of this country? Because it seems like that came in that that phrase came into vogue post World War Two. But yet, every state in the country has a city named Salem, which I'm told is is a, a takeoff on the word shalom. Well, yes, um, and also, I mean, you know, the words on the Liberty Bell, you know, proclaim liberty throughout the land are from the uh, Hebrew prophet Isaiah. Um, you know, there is a lot of um, you know, sort of the the language of the you know of the founding of the founders that has to do with um, you know that comes from the Hebrew Bible, which is 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 a shared heritage between Jews and Christians. Um, but I think also what you know what's remarkable about this country, and I should say, you know, there's been a, a Jewish community in the United States for since uh, the first the first Jewish community arrived here in 1654. So you know, in the colonial period before you even had. You know, before America was the uh, United States, um, and you know that's uh, one of my favorite stories about the founding of this country is uh, at the time after um, the you know after the revolution, there was a point where the Jews of Newport, Rhode Island, in the seventeen in the late seventeen eighties, they wrote a letter to um, George Washington um, right when he had 
first become president and said, you know, are, is this country going to be a welcoming place for Jews? Um, you know, we saw and you have this constitution that says, you know, that people are given freedom of religion. You know, we hope that we can, we'll find that here. And he, uh, George Washington has this famous letter that he wrote to the Jews of Newport, Rhode Island that says, you know, this is a country that will give bigotry no sanction and persecution no assistance. And he quotes the Hebrew prophet Micah, says, you know, each person, this will be a place where each person can sit under their vine and fig tree and none shall make them afraid. And that's from the Hebrew prophet Micah. So, I mean, has America always lived up to that? You know, of course not, but it's, uh, it's, it's an ideal that we all are still striving for. The name of the book is People Love Dead Jews, Reports from a Haunted Present. Um, can you share a couple more reports from the, the haunted present? <laughs> Sure. Um, so there, there are many stories I include in the book. Um, just to, to mention a couple, um, one story I, I tell in the book is the story of, um, of uh, a legend that many American Jews have heard in their families, uh, you know, in, in their families over the years, which is our last name was changed at Ellis Island. Um, you know, this is something that people say, like, oh, you know, we used to have this, like, you know, long Jewish-sounding last name, and now, you know, we used to be, you know, Greenberg, and now our name is Green, but, you know, that's because the, our name was changed at Ellis Island. Um, you know, and there are other American ethnic groups that maybe tell this story, too. Spoiler alert, no one's name was changed at Ellis Island. Um, in, uh, immigration inspectors at Ellis Island never wrote down people's names. Yeah, they I, were, was, I was really surprised by that because it's so built into the um, uh, the the legends of Ellis Island. Yes, well, it is absolutely false. Um, you know, Ellis Island now is a national park. If it's been up and running for about 30 years, they tell you this on public tours. It's not like a secret. Um, this isn't like, oh, I discovered this in my research, right? I mean, everyone who you know, studies American immigration history knows this. And, you know, if you ever, you know, I live in New Jersey. If you go on a you know, school field trip to Ellis Island, they tell you this. Um, but, you know, there's a reason that story persists. Because what I found is uh, I, I sort of became interested in this because I mentioned this event at some public talks at a Jewish institution, and then I mentioned it in an article I wrote for a Jewish publication. And I just noticed, like, people wouldn't believe me. People would, like, mob me after these talks and be like, well, you know, you said nobody's name was changed, but, you know, my great-grandfather was the exception. And I'm like, no, he wasn't. <laughs> um, you know, in the comments, people would be yelling at me. But you also thought, explain well, in the book that there were a lot of uh, Jewish people and maybe some other ethnic groups as well that went to court and got their names changed. Exactly, exactly. So this, and it's, again, not a secret. There's tens of thousands of court records in New York City civil courts of Jews going to change their Jewish-sounding names to non-Jewish ones. And in their court petitions, they explain why. It's because I can't get a job with the, with the last name Cohen. That's why, right? It's not a secret. You know, oh, my kid, well, you know, my, my kid's being bullied at school, right? You know, no one's, you know, no one's patronizing my business. You know, I, I can't get into college with this last name. And, I mean, and what you see, it's like this devastating reality because basically it's that American anti-Semitism was impeding these people's success. And so what you see is them essentially succumbing to it in a way by changing their names. And that's when I realized, you know, this happy story we hear about, oh, my name was changed at Ellis Island. That story was something that a lot of American Jews' ancestors 
gave them that story to protect them, right? To not to not tell them this psychologically damaging thing that actually this country wasn't as welcoming as we had hoped. And I think that 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 legend, in a sense, you know, is doing some kind of emotional work where, um, you know, it made you know subsequent Amer- um, generations of American Jews feel more welcome in this country. There's there's a funny story about a guy going to get his name changed. His name was Joe Schicklegruber, and he wanted to have it changed to Frank Schicklegruber. And, <laughs> and the judge said, "Now, now wait a minute. Let me get this right. You want to change your first name from Joe to Frank? You don't want to change Schicklegruber?" And he goes, "No." And and the judge says, "How come?" And he says, "I'm just tired of people coming up to me all the time and saying, hello, Joe. What do you know?'" <laughs> right. And of course, the reason that's funny, right? And the reason that's so funny is because it's hiding the ball. Right? There's a darkness underneath jokes like that, and a darkness underneath the story of Ellis Island. Right? Which exactly. is exactly. They're, like you, in other words, the only reason that you and I both find that joke funny is because we both know that a Jewish-sounding name is the thing you want to get rid of. Well, what does that say about our society, that the Jewish-sounding name is socially unacceptable? How do people uh, try to, I don't, I don't know, um, change anti-Semitism. I, you know, I, we have this discussion a lot in this country about blacks and whites and, and how whites, you know, there's, there's this old, um, I remember when I was a kid, people used to say and didn't even realize it was offensive that, you know, s- some of my best friends are black. Well, at the time, some of my best friends are colored. And how do we avoid unintentional digs, you know, how, how, how do we avoid saying some of my best friends are Jewish? <laughs> yes, it's a very similar, uh, very similar dynamic, I, and, and I think that, that I'm glad you brought this up because it really reveals how, like, everyone's invested in this problem, right? I mean, we're having a national conversation right now about how we think about diversity, how we think about the evils of the past, and I mean, Jews have thousands of years of accumulated uh, experience and wisdom on this topic. I think what it has to do with is, you know, people are often asked to erase their parts of their identity in order to deserve public respect. Um, You know, and this is something I know as a woman, right? I know that, you know, when I'm speaking publicly, I'm expected to constantly smile, even when I'm talking about something very grim, right? I mean, a man would not be expected to smile his way through a discussion about a conversation about a book called People Love Dead Jews. But as a woman, I mean, we're on radio, so I have to smile. But, you know, if I'm doing, if when I'm giving a public lecture, I'm expected to smile because I'm a woman. So, and what that means is my job as a woman is to make men feel comfortable. Um, and I think many minority groups, um, you know, you gave, brought up the black experience, absolutely, and, and certainly including Jews, have a similar experience where the priority is on making other people feel good about themselves. You know, actual diversity would involve letting other people make you feel uncomfortable, right? Letting other people challenge your beliefs. Um, it would involve being curious about the actual content of other people's cultures, beliefs, and experiences, instead of just like turning those into feel-good lessons about themselves or about, your, you know, about oneself. So um, you said, like, what can we do about this? So I'll give you an example that, uh, for 
Jewish history that I see as a problem in education. If you think about um, a public school um, textbook in social studies in you know, middle school or above, generally what is in a history book about Jews in a general interest public school history textbook? The Usually there's like a paragraph at the beginning about the Israelites. Okay, so those are like, you know, people lived a long time ago and they're dead and who cares? And then there's a chapter toward the end about the Holocaust. Well, so what message is this sending about the role Jews play in civilization? It's basically saying, you know, these are dead people, and they're here to teach us a lesson about, like, you know, humanity or something. Well, I mean, this is an, 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 Judaism is this, like, amazing counterculture that has survived through all of these supposedly all-powerful empires. You know, this is a society that has survived many persecutions and also has, but not just that, but it's a society that has sort of, it's been a counterculture where it's offering an antidote to the flaws in those larger societies. Um, I remember something that happened among, in my family with my children who, um, in, where I live in New Jersey, there's always a curriculum in sixth grade where they learn about ancient civilization and they learn about ancient Egypt and ancient Babylonia and ancient Greece and Rome. And each year when my kids were in sixth grade, at some point during the year they'd come home and they'd say, you know, in school we're learning about all these great civilizations of the past, but at home we, like, have a holiday for each of these civilizations about how they tried to kill us. So, like, which one is it? Are these great civilizations? Or are they, you know, are they evil? And I'm like, well, they're both. Right? And that's sort of like, you know, and there's a way that, you know, yes, Egypt was a great civilization. It was all those amazing things they built were with slave labor. And I think, you know, those same questions come up when we think about American history with, you know, with, with uh, the black experience in America um, and with the Native American experience in America. There are ways to tell stories about the past and about the present where we can, where it's not just about, you know, patting ourselves on the back for, you know, telling a nice story. And there are, and also ways where it's not just wallowing in horrors. There's ways where you think about, you know, the difficult questions in the past and you turn it into what psychologists now call post-traumatic growth. Dara, I feel like we're just scratching the surface and we're almost out of time. I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? I do. My website is www.darahorn.com, D-A-R-A-H-O-R-N.com. Uh, my book is People Love Dead Jews. Uh, it's uh, available, as we say, wherever books are sold. It's, uh, there's a recorded book as well. I also want to mention, um, I also have a podcast, uh, which oh, I cool. just released. In, yeah, it's, um, and the podcast it's, tells different stories than the ones in the book, um, but with a um, similar idea. It's also, I would say, a lot funnier. Um, they're, uh, they, they found the background music for it by looking through all the, the background music of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Uh, the <laughs> podcast is called Adventures with Dead Jews, and uh, that's available now on you know, all the podcast platforms, Adventures with Dead Jews. Well, Daryl, what's next for you? Um, well, I'm deep into this podcast. It's uh, you know we're, I'm, I'm now wrapping up the the first season, and uh, hopefully there will be others. Um, I also I'm working on a new novel and uh, and also a graphic novel for children. So I've got a, a lot of things in the works. Well, I I'm with all that going on. I'm glad you were able to take some time and uh, share some stories with me and the listeners. And and uh, thank you for spending this time with me. Keep up the good thank work. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Thank you. That was uh, 
author Dara Horn. The book is People Love Dead Jews, Reports from a Haunted Present. Dara Horn uh, has five novels before this. She has taught Hebrew and Yiddish literature at Harvard. And uh, we're going to have more of the Tom Sumner program coming up in uh, just a moment or so. If you're listening to us on WFOV 92.1 FM, Our Voices Radio in Flint, they are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my good friend Paul Herring. We're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We've still got lots more to go on today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Start your weekend early with the Tom Sumner Program every Friday live at 11. We turn the spotlight on the world of arts and entertainment featuring artists from music, TV, and the movies. Catch everything from the rich local talent pool in and around Flint and Genesee County to up-and-coming stars of stage and screen, plus legends from New York and Hollywood. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is... This is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Start your weekend right. Go to 11 Fridays on the Tom Sumner Program. Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the bath. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. 
Imagine a journey down a picturesque riverway. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Summer Program.com Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Is there any song you'd like to hear played badly? When I was a kid, when I was a kid, we couldn't afford a watch. I used to tell time with my fiddle. I'd practice late at night. The neighbors would say, fine, time to practice violin, 10 o'clock at night. Hey, everybody, give me an A. Yeah. All right, we'll have a little folk singing now. The Jewish hit parade. Buckle down, yeshiva, buckle down. <laughs> Tiptoe through the temple in your talus. In some secluded synagogue. April in Paris, Pesach in Norway. <laughs> you came, I was in shul. How did I know it was your bar mitzvah? Here's your mother from Odessa. Was your old man a pants presser? Oh, I feel good today. I was up at the crack of six this morning. Took a brisk walk to the bathroom. Was back in bed six or five. <laughs> I was under that coal shower for ten minutes. Tomorrow I'll turn the water on. <laughs> I had a thing happen today. I put a Canadian dime in a parking meter. A Mountie showed up. Give me a ticket. I play this thing two ways, for pleasure or revenge. <laughs> this fiddle's been in the hot shop so much, the guy can play it better than I can. In fact, I'm studying with him right now. You got it? Take the picture. You got to put film in there, kid. I keep moving, I'm no fool. Once I want to become an atheist, I gave it up to have the holidays. (laughs) 
And the words of King Solomon, who said to his thousand wives in bed, take a number for better service. And in the words of Mrs. Ponce de Leon, who said to her husband Ponce, Ponce, you going to Miami without me? And in the words of Alexander Graham Bell, who said to his wife in bed, what do you mean my three minutes are up? In Boston a couple of years ago, a man knocks on the door. Who's there? I'm the boss of Strangler. He turns to his wife. It's for you, dear. <laughs> same man comes back a year later, knocks on the same door. Who's there? I'm the boss of Strangler. He said, I already gave. <laughs> the big finish. her wheelbarrow through streets that are narrow her barrow is narrow her hips are too wide so wherever she wheels it the neighborhood feels it her girdle keeps scraping the homes on each side in Dublin's fair city where girls are so pretty My Molly stands out Cause she weighs 18 stone It's 256 pounds I don't mind her fat But It's not only that But She's cockeyed and muscle-bound Molly I know a man, his name is Lang, and he has a neon sign. And Mr. Lang is very old, so they call it Old Lang Sign. Oh, what have you done, Billy Sal, Billy Sal? Oh, what have you done, charming Billy? You took almost every cent from the U.S. government, which you spent on fertilizer, which is silly. All day, all night, Cary Grant. That's all I hear from my wife is Cary Grant. What can he do that I can't? Big deal, big star, Cary Grant. Oh, the moon is bright tonight upon the car wash. So I'm having my Volkswagen washed again. But the way things go with me, the way my luck runs Just as soon as they're finished, it will rain 
On top of old Smokey, all covered with hair. Of course, I'm referring to Smokey the Bear. Here's a famous old folk song that you all know entitled Aura Lee. Every time you take vaccine, take it orally. As you know, the other way is more painfully. My grandfather's clock was the best ever made by the Timex Company. Just like the clock John Cameron Swayze displayed last night on the old TV. Oh, it works underwater so perfectly, and it still makes a ticking sound, which my grandfather tried only this afternoon, and that's how the old man drowned. Do not make a stingy sandwich pile the cold cuts high. Customers should see salami coming through the rice. Oh, I diet all day and I diet all night. It's enough to drive me bats. Got no gravy or potatoes, cause the whole refrigerator's full of polyunsaturated fats. Fairly well, Metrical, and the others of that ilk. Let the diet start tomorrow, cause today I'll drown my sorrow in a double malted milk. Oh, when you go to the delicatessen store, don't buy the liverwurst. Don't buy the liverwurst. Don't buy the liverwurst. I repeat what I just said before. Don't buy the liverwurst. Don't buy the liverwurst. Oh, buy the corned beef if you must. The pickled herring you can trust. And the locks puts you in orbit. A-OK. -okay. But that big hunk of liverwurst has been there since October 1st. And today is the 23rd of May. So when you go to the delicatessen store, don't buy the liverwurst. Don't buy the liverwurst. Don't buy the liverwurst, it'll make your insides awful sore. Don't buy the liverwurst, don't buy the liverwurst! This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Maybe 
show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here. <laughs>